Well, good morning, friends. It is a joy to be with you today as we open up the Word of God. And I want to give you a warm welcome, whether you are joining us here in person or you're joining us online. It is a joy to worship with you and always a great honor and privilege to open up the Word of God with you as we continue our series. This is week three. This changes everything. And as we, as we continue to prepare our hearts, let us pray. Living Lord, we thank you so much for your presence that is alive here in this place. We pray that in these next few moments that we would tilt, turn, open our hearts to you. Let this moment not be in vain, Lord, but may we hear from you. So give us ears to hear, give us a mind to understand, give us eyes to see and a heart to receive your love and word for us on this day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If someone were to come to you that knows absolutely nothing about Christianity, and they were to ask you a simple question, what is a Christian? How might you describe it? I would imagine there'd be a number of different ways, a rainbow of ways that we might describe what it is that makes up a Christian. But then if they were to say, well, what is it that epitomizes a Christian? How do we know that one is a Christian? Over the last several weeks, we've been walking through our series, This Changes Everything, where we have been reflecting on the six values that we believe are the essence or the epitome of the Christian life. And in these six values, we believe that they have the potential to unlock areas of our lives in which we might be stuck. Two weeks ago, Pastor Dan walked us through this life-changing worship and what it means to bear witness to the love of God. And last week, uh, Pastor Eric Haskins walked us through this life of formation and life in community. And today I want to answer this simple question, yet complex. What is the epitome of the Christian life? What is it that makes a Christian? How do we know that one is a Christian? Some scholars believe that perhaps out of any teachings of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount gives us the fullest picture of what the epitome of the Christian life is. It gives us a full picture, a robust picture of how a Christian ought to live. You see in the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus gives us a robust vision of the people of God, of this already, some scholars call it this already but not yet vision of God's people. In other words, there's a taste of the future kingdom that impinges on the present that makes up the beauty of the people of God. And also within Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, we are faced with very difficult teachings of Jesus. If we were to read it with fresh eyes, we might feel uncomfortable. There might be passages or, or teachings of Jesus that, that cause us to pause and oftentimes then the temptation for us is to, to want to tone it down. Did Jesus 
really mean that? Did Jesus really mean it that harshly or that severe or that intensely? You see, over and over, Jesus raises the bar for the Christ follower. And by the time we get into a section of Scripture known as the antitheses, there are six different antitheses where Jesus, he'll, he'll quote an understanding of the law for us found in the Old Testament. We'll say, you've heard it said, live this way, but I'm telling you, I want you to raise the bar. And in fact, leading up to that passage even, Jesus makes a, a really difficult statement. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you simply will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's almost one of those record scratch moments. Say, what, Jesus? Unless our righteousness outstrips that of the Pharisees, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven? This, of course, caused all the listeners of that day to squirm. What possibly could he mean by this? And then he just keeps raising the bar. He keeps pushing the envelope. He keeps upping the ante. Let let me just read a few examples of, of these audacious statements of Jesus. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I'm telling you, don't get angry, Jesus says. He goes on to say, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I'm saying to you, don't even have lustful thoughts towards someone else. And he goes on, he said, you've heard it said, you can divorce if you get a written notice, but I'm telling you, don't get divorced unless unfaithful. He, he goes on, he says, you've heard it said, don't break your oath, but I'm telling you, don't even make an oath. And he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, but I tell you to turn the other cheek. And then he says perhaps the most audacious one of all. Found in Matthew chapter five, verse 43, he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then he follows it up, he wraps this entire section up in verse 48 by saying, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Hold up, Jesus. First, he begins by saying (laughs) that unless our righteousness outstrips that of the Pharisees, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And now he's telling us to be perfect. Perfect. Scholars, of course, have grappled with this text for centuries of trying to understand what exactly is Jesus getting at by the way of Christian perfection because we know that no one is perfect but God. We know that every single one of us have had this bent towards sin and that without the grace of God, we would not even be able to live this life of holiness. That without the Holy Spirit and the anointing and the grace of God, we would not even be able to exude the fruits of the Spirit. But yet, no one is perfect but God. And so scholars have long since tried to grapple with what it is that Jesus is getting at here in this section of Scripture, calling us to a higher level of righteousness 
and calling us to the way of perfection. But we have to zoom out and understand this entire section of Scripture through the lens by which Jesus was teaching over and over and over again. You see, for Jesus, all of his teachings were to be viewed through one lens and one lens alone. And we hear about it in Mark chapter 12, verses 27 through 31, when he says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. This is a passage of scripture that we recite as a family sometimes up to three times a day before every meal. And when my boys were just this age, little toddlers, we began teaching it to them with hand motions. We would say, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And when we do strength, they'd flex and the the veins would, would pop out of their neck. They'd say, strength. But it was important for us as a family that our children would grow up reciting this passage of Scripture because after all, Jesus said it is the most important commandment. There is no other commandment greater than these. In other words, this was the divine guide by which all disciples were to live their lives. That all disciples who live under the reign and rule of King Jesus then would love God with everything, would love God with their heart, mind, soul, and strength, And not only would they love God with everything, but they would also love their neighbors as themselves. This is a commandment in which Jesus viewed everything. Love was to lead the life of the disciple. And today, love is to lead the life of all of us, the lives of all of us. And so when Jesus is calling us to a higher form of righteousness, and then when Jesus is calling us to the way of perfection, he does this immediately after saying, you've heard it said, love your neighbor. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Scholars then conclude that this way of perfection and this way of righteousness that Jesus is calling us to in his Sermon on the Mount is to discover and live the life of loving as God loves. In other words, to have an indiscriminate, boundary-breaking, cross-cultural, counter-cultural kind of love. See, perfection isn't a checklist of right and wrong. You see, I grew up in the holiness tradition. In the holiness tradition, we had a phrase, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't go with girls or guys that do. This is not the way of perfection. But instead, the way of perfection is to live a life of utter devotion, of loving God with everything, 
and loving our neighbors as ourselves. That we are also to love those who are hard to love. That we are also to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us as Jesus. This is the essence. This is the epitome of the Christian life. Jesus even takes it to the extreme by calling it perfection, that we would love as God loves. And this is to be the posture that we as Christ followers start to have with every person that we meet. You see, most scholars then would agree that this is the ultimate ethic. This is the ultimate ethic in which Jesus frames his entire Sermon on the Mount, and it is precisely the lens in which we are to view our lives and understand our calling. And so now let's flesh this out just a little bit more. What exactly does this look like? What does love do? Well, we could certainly turn to 1 Corinthians 13, and we could talk about how, how love is patient, how love is kind. Uh, but if you've been to a wedding or two, you're familiar with that passage. I'd like to take a look at a different passage of Scripture, also in the Sermon on the Mount, that gives us a picture of exactly what love does. And it's found in the Beatitudes. You see, the Beatitudes are found at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you imagine the scene, Jesus, he's teaching, and he begins to describe the types of people that you might find in the kingdom of God. You imagine almost setting a table. Growing up, my mom always put placards at the table of who sat where. So no one had to have any anxiety about where they were going to sit. And I've since taken on that tradition. And you can imagine Jesus setting a table. He says, these are the types of people you are going to find in my kingdom. And there's one particular person that I'd like to draw out this morning. And Jesus calls them the merciful. As he says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. You see, at Jesus' table are the merciful And oftentimes we equate mercy with forgiveness or for me growing up, we had this really, really messed up game as children uh, where me and my brothers, we would face each other holding hands and we'd twist our arms as hard as we could and whoever said mercy first lost. It's a terrible game. (laughs) Hope my children never learn it. Brought much pain. And see, oftentimes we view mercy as letting go. Or we view mercy as forgiveness. But we have to understand, yes, while mercy does forgive, Jesus is also working off an Old Testament or a Jewish framework of exactly what mercy is. Mercy, yes, of course, is forgiveness. But mercy extends beyond that. You see, mercy in a Jewish framework is absolutely clear. That mercy is something that one does, born out of love. In other words, mercy is feeding the hungry. It's offering hospitality to the traveler. It's caring for the poor. It's clothing the naked. In fact, Isaiah chapter 58 gets at it when the prophet says, 
Is not this kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked, to clothe them, and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood? And then Micah 6, 8 gets at it too, and it says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. As Jesus describes the type of people that sit at his kingdom of God, he is no doubt drawing from this Jewish understanding of mercy. And we see this even in the life, in the teachings, in the ministry of Jesus. That over and over and over again, Jesus was stopped in his tracks and he was confronted with those who needed mercy. In Matthew chapter 9, for example, two blind men following Jesus cry out, have mercy on us, son of David. In Matthew chapter 15, a Canaanite woman cries out, have mercy on me, Lord. My daughter is demon-possessed. In Matthew chapter 17, a man falls to his knees and cries out, have mercy on me. My son is ill. In Matthew chapter 20, a blind man cries out as Jesus is passing by, Jesus, have mercy on me. What we conclude, can conclude then, as each and every one of these who were crying out for mercy had one common thread, they were all in bondage of need. In other words, these were people who were in the valleys and the ditches of life. They were not just stuck, but they were stuck in reverse. They were in bondage of hunger or need or clothing. And there is absolutely no way they could have been delivered from that place of bondage. There is absolutely no way they could have been fed. There's absolutely no way they could have been healed. There's absolutely no way they could have been delivered without someone else coming alongside of them and setting them free from the bondage of need. Not one of these people could help themselves. And they cried out, Jesus, have mercy on us. And what Jesus does is shows us over and over again the way of mercy. That mercy is something one does. Coming alongside of the hungry, coming alongside of those who are in the bondage of need, and setting them free. And Jesus doesn't just teach this, but he embodies it. And here's the wild part. We even see how wildly inconvenient it is. Jesus was always on his way somewhere else. He had appointments to get to. He had people to minister to. He had ministry to attend to. He had disciples to teach. He had 5,000 people to feed. And always he was stopped in his tracks. His agenda was thwarted. 
oftentimes flipped upside down and his entire day changed. As he moved towards those who were hungry, thirsty, or in the bondage of need, and he set them three free. You see, it would be easy to think that mercy is simply a characteristic or a character trait. But perhaps no one puts it better other than Jesus. The New Testament scholar Glenn Stassen, when he puts it this way, he calls mercy compassion in action. Or maybe we could take it a step further this morning and we could call mercy love in action. Mercy then is one, is an outflow of one who lives in relationship with God, in utter devotion to God, loving God with heart, mind, soul, and strength, and understands the calling of a life that is born out of love in relationship with God, of partnering with God and the act of delivering those who are in the bondage of need, oftentimes through very inconvenient moments of mercy. And over and over and over again, we see Jesus doing just that. And so Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Well, I don't know. That, that sounds like works righteousness, Terabeth. Are you saying that in, unless I'm merciful, that I'm not going to be shown mercy from, from God? James, Jesus' brother, gets at it a little bit in his book. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, If someone claims to have faith, but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Well, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good, he says. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Again, it was Martin Luther who called this at first the book of straw because he struggled with the works righteousness tone in here. But Scott McKnight follows all of, this under, all of this up and wraps this up for us, this idea of mercy, by saying this. He says, to the merciful is pro- pro- promised divine mercy and judgment at his in- entrance into the kingdom. While this blessing creates disturbance for us at times about works righteousness, this is important, its design is to remind us that mercy is fundamental to a proper love of God. In other words, mercy then 
is fundamental to a proper love of God. Mercy is an outflow of one who declares, I am one that seeks to love God with my whole heart, with my whole soul, with my whole mind, with all of my strength. Mercy is one that lives in the way of Christian perfection as Jesus describes it. That is, one who loves God with this indiscriminate kind of love, this boundary-breaking kind of love, this cross-cultural kind of love, this countercultural kind of love is one that shows compassion in action, love in action, and is propelled by the power of the Holy Spirit to move towards those who are stuck in life in the bondage of need and could not possibly be set free without someone else coming alongside of them. Rodney Stark a church historian, reflects on what it was that made the early church stand out. Uh, This is what he says. He says, in the midst of squalor, misery, illness, and anonymity of ancient cities, Christianity provided an island of mercy and security. It started with Jesus. In contrast, in the pagan world, and especially among the philosophers, mercy was regarded as a character deficit and pity as a pathological emotion because mercy involves providing unearned help or relief. It is contrary to justice. Imagine that. The fledgling church stood out in stark contrast that in a world of misery, that in a world of squalor, that in a world of pain and darkness and brokenness, the church was an island of mercy. Not much has changed today. That is, we live in a world of squalor and misery and illness and war and pain, and we are surrounded by those who are in the bondage of need. Imagine a church in the Western world that is an island of mercy, that is a committed people to the love of God and understands that love of God is in action and is lived out through mercy and service. As tomorrow we observe Martin Luther King Jr. Day, I couldn't help but be reminded of exactly what he hoped to be remembered for as he reflected on his death. He said, at the end of the day, every now and then I think about my own death and I think about my funeral. Every now and then I ask myself, What is it that I would want said? I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love someone. Now, of course, we might be thinking, wow, (laughs) he is a moral exemplar. He lived a life that showed a life that was fundamental to proper love of God and mercy and service. 
I could never live like that. But allow me to bring his voice in one more profound statement when he says this. Everybody can be great because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and your verb agree to serve. You only have to have a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. A heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. It seems to me that Martin Luther King Jr. understood the framework by which Jesus was working. Now, the greatest thing we can do, the way of perfection, is to learn the life of loving as God loves. And that that love would propel and impel, empower and embolden us to move towards those who are in the bondage of need. Friends, may we, as a church in Oak Brook, be known as a place that is an island of mercy and love amid a world of squalor, misery, and illness. May that epitomize us. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you show us the way of love, that you show us the way of mercy. We commit our hearts to you on this day to love you, to know you, to follow you. And by your spirit, may Christ Church and Oak Brook and Butterfield and beyond be known as an island of mercy and security, of healing and love. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.